This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to our final podcast from Australia on the night where this man continued to make history. The serve, out wide, big forehand from team. Djokovic goes up the middle of the court, team scrambling, slice backhand. Djokovic goes with an off forehand, big cross court backhand from team. Djokovic is there at the middle of the court, wide from team! Hello from Melbourne and from me, Peter Macasso, joined by Chris Bowers. And that commentary you heard is courtesy of Australian Open's radio station, AO Radio. Chris, it was another fantastic win for Novak Djokovic. Number eight, didn't have it all his own way against Dominic Team, And this generation coming up behind, getting closer. But still, we're talking about Novak winning another major title. And he had to dig deep. He had to actually play a very sensible game. We're, we know him for his warrior-like qualities, his ability to, to fight really hard. But on this occasion, the warrior-like qualities got him into difficulties in the second and third sets. And actually, it was when he started to play within himself and manage his energy early in the fourth set that he started to turn the match around. And it was a more controlled Djokovic. In many ways, it was a less spectacular title than some of his previous ones. But I actually think that this might end up being one of the most satisfying for him because of the way he dug deep and played within himself to get the best out of the final. Well, the streak coming in, of course, winning the ATP Cup for Serbia. He comes in here, he was feeling good, he knows his preparation so well. By the way, we should mention for our final broadcast or podcast from Australia, we are sort of seated a little bit away from the main hubbub of the crowd and Novak Djokovic and doing his post-match rounds around the TV venues and still a big crowd following him around. Yeah, it's going to get raucous media. though, isn't it? It will, it will, but we've managed to find a quiet little interlude here and we need to catch our breath because oh, it was an amazing final. It was an amazing final, four hours exactly. Yes, on the clock and... You know, it was interesting. We thought, okay, Djokovic won that opening set. Thought, oh, okay, he's going to run away with it. But team showed why he got into the final, showed why he's such a great player on a hard court and that we won't enter into any other debate otherwise on that. But then towards the end, that level started to drop and Djokovic was just able to take control as we've seen so many times before on the Rod Laver Arena. Yeah, I think team played his best tennis in the quarterfinals against Nadal. That was the match he was really up for. And I think had his backhand down the line worked on a regular basis in this final, the result might have been different. There were an awful lot of really long points where he pulled the trigger at absolutely the right moment, but it didn't quite fire the way it did against Nadal. In many ways, the fact that he was able to take this to five sets and the fact that he was able to get through Sverev on Friday in the semi-finals when he wasn't playing as well as he played against Nadal is a sign that he belongs in the top five because he's able to eke out these kind of uh, victories by not necessarily playing at his best. But when you're up against Djokovic, who's still only 32 years old and really still in some respects at the peak of his career, yes. uh, it was such a big ask. And maybe it's just a little bit of uh, lack of experience, but I do wonder whether what team has learnt this week will set him up 
for a realistic chance of the French, which I've always felt is likely to be his first major, but probably the first of several spread over different surfaces. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's talk about eight titles for Novak, because we've, we, we talk about Rafa and what he's been able to do at Roland Garros, what Roger's done at Wimbledon. We've got to put it alongside what Nole is doing here, like eight titles out of eight finals, 100% winning record when he reaches the final. It is outstanding. It is. And it's interesting, isn't it? We had these three great champions who have, you know, not so long ago that Pete Sampras beat Roy Emerson's record of 12, took it up to 14 majors, and all three have not only beaten it, but surpassed it quite uh, magnificently. And yet all three of them have a slam where they have dominated. Mm. Uh, Djokovic and Federer with eight titles at uh, the Australian Open and Wimbledon, respectively, and Nadal <laughs> well, well into uh, double figures at the French Open. So, you know, I think uh, it's perhaps not surprising that they are dominant at all four, but they each have one in particular. What's interesting, though, is that all four of them have still only won one of them once. Yes, which is in itself interesting, but we can break up the numbers any way we want to. A little bit controversy, we have to mention that the time penalties on the serve that Djokovic got, which were actually in one game, he got one penalty, the clock wound down to zero, he decided to test out Damien Dumasois again, the clock went down to zero, he lost a serve, he then walked over, touched the shoes of Damien as he was walking on, luckily it was all pretty much done after that, but you know, for me... It is annoying when that clock goes down to zero and the players complain. I think we have to think about the spectacle of tennis and the reason for the shot clock is to make sure that tennis is continuous as it's yes. supposed to be. You know, it's not like in sports like uh, soccer where, you know, you get the ball in play an awful lot of the time. You know, we, we do have the stop-start in tennis, and that's fine. That's the nature of the game, but you don't want too long a gap. And that's why that rule was introduced. What's also interesting is that when you get Djokovic getting angry, often it's the turning point for him. It wasn't the turning point. He yes. actually had the medical timeout at 4-1. Or was it, it wasn't a timeout, but it was the medical advice at 4-1. He took something. He had a bit more medical advice at the end of the third set. And it was only early in the fourth that he really started to regroup, where he actually reined in some of the, the outwardly warrior-like uh, attributes that he often shows. And that's what turned it round for him. And uh, in a way, it, it's a lesson for him that sometimes less is more. Amazing tournament overall. 812,174 spectators through the gates up from the record of 796, 435. And we've got to talk about the bushfire relief appeal because $100 per race coming out of the whole Australian summer and $6 million plus has been raised over the Australian summer for the bushfire relief. Uh, of course, you've seen it uh, when you arrived here. We obviously know it. it is a continuing crisis that's unfolding here in Australia. And it's great to see tennis doing their part. And it's great to see so many people coming through the gate supporting this great sport. It is. And I think this is uh, something where tennis has been able to see itself in perspective. I think Dominic Team's speech on the podium yes. uh, as the runner-up was very good. He said, we've seen that some things are more important than tennis and it's actually good that tennis has been able to play its part in contributing money for the bushfire relief you're not going to bring back to life the thousands of wild animals that have died you're not going to bring back to life the uh, couple of dozen people the in particular firefighters who lost their lives those are ongoing tragedies and those families need support but there is at least a 
a major influx of money to help the relief effort from the sport of tennis, which I think is absolutely right. And I think it, it's a tremendous achievement. In terms of the numbers, I think the reason the numbers keep going up is that the tournament expands itself yes. as an event. I mean, if I just give you one statistic, the, the for the men's singles final, we had a record 30,700 people through the gate. So you might say, well, hang on a second. The stadium has a capacity of 15,000, but they have the screen in Garden Square. They have a screen rigged up in Margaret Court Arena. And they have a lot of people who just like to come in for that sense of being part of the community. And that is the modern tennis uh, event for you. It's not just about pay your money, go through the gate, buy yourself an ice cream and go into the stadium. Yep. There's a whole... Um, you know, array of a parallel events going on yeah. so that people can experience the final on site without necessarily having a ticket in the main stadium. And uh, that's the way tennis is going. And it's not just at majors, it's happening on the tour as well. An awful lot of the big tournaments on the ATP tour have that kind of parallel program so that people turn up to a broad experience rather than just a tennis match. Yeah, everywhere you look, it's been an amazing event. I'll tell you what, Chris, the, the throat's starting to feel a little bit croaky. So what we'll do, I might go and get a bit of honey and lemon and uh, maybe a cup of tea. I'll get you a cup of tea as well. We might move a little Let's bit. find a nice sofa. Yeah, we'll find a nice sofa. We might be a little bit closer to the action, but we'll relax and we'll take time to reflect on what a tournament it has been outside of just the final because it's been an amazing two weeks, an amazing Australian summer. That's coming up next on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. There's plenty of live action during March on ATP Tennis Radio, starting in the Californian desert. We'll bring you every day of the BMP Paribas Open in Indian Wells before moving to the all-new venue at the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami for the Miami Open. Presented by Itawu. That's live coverage of the ATP Tour. And there is the roar for Juan Martín Del Potro. Reaches, sir. On ATP Tennis Radio. OK, so now we've moved. We're in a, a slightly quieter location. Out of the hubbub. We're out of the way of the champion and all of that sort of stuff going on. And we're sort of just... Lounging about, we've got to be careful though, Chris, because uh, at this stage of the tournament, things disappear very quickly if they're not nailed down. They pack up the site very quickly these days around these parts. It's the thing about tournaments, the Sunday night, it's supposed to be the, the time when you're at your most excited because new champion just crowned, and yet everything's dismantled around you. I once uh, remember a, a reporter who found himself doing his final radio report and he was about six foot off the ground and the, the floor that he was on was about the only bit of structure left. Everything else around him had been moved. Yep, well, the whole thing about this site is that it all gets uh, back into concert mode and other sport mode and everything like that very, very quickly. So they've got to pull everything down and, and get it ready and turned around uh, because they've got to get it back to normal service. And of course, the construction work needs to continue as well to be ready for next week and next week's next year's tournament. I'm already getting ahead of myself. Anyway, let's take a look at some of the other talking points from this fascinating AO for 2020. And well, we haven't talked about him yet. I suppose we better bring him up since it's been a constant theme in our podcast over the last three weeks. Roger Federer and the amazing performance had five setters where he was down, got back into it, ran over the top, then came up against Djokovic. He wasn't fit. He said he had a 3% chance of winning. And he still put in a great performance like that. I mean, this is a guy who is still 
still playing at the top of his game and still competitive. Yeah, and I think he went at that match against Djokovic with absolutely the right energy. He said, OK, so it's a bit like a handicap tournament where I'm told that I have to play with a slight groin strain. I can't get fully out to my forehand, probably can't get fully out to the backhand. And I'm up against, you know, the greatest hardcore player at the moment. But let's give it a go. Let's see how to make a match of this. He got off to a great start. I think part of that was because of uh, Djokovic slightly underestimating the task. Djokovic made for me a, a slightly elementary error, and that is that he was waiting for too long in the first set to see how fit Federer actually was, rather than playing his own game. And as a result of that, Federer got off to the great start. But you know, the result is respectable, and you'll look through the annals of history and you'll see you know, three tight sets and it will look the kind of match it could have been if Federer had been fully fit. But I think Federer, having got to the semi-finals, I think he will say mission accomplished. I'd love to say we're in a quieter spot, but it turned out that uh, at this time of night things are just quite noisy. There's still plenty happening around Melbourne, it seems, around us Well, there's now. trains, there's helicopters and there's uh, uh, bottle banks being emptied. Yes, that, yes. That happens the world over, Peter. The, st the standard sort of uh, end of tournament sort of stuff. Hey, Sasha Zverev, I thought was sensational this tournament. From what we saw in the ATP Cup up in Brisbane to what we saw here in Melbourne, completely different player. I hope he gets plenty of belief out of this and is able to propel himself to bigger and better things. I mean, uh, you know, a cracking match against Dominic Team in that semi-final. The way he got through the first week, I think, was the highlight for me. The fact that he was able to get through it in straight sets. There weren't the wobbles where his game just disappeared for sets at a time and he had to try and pull through in five, thus tiring himself out to make a tilt at the second second week. I think this has been a massive, massive step forward for him. I think it has. And in fact, even the way he lost a team, he was making very, very few errors. And for much of that match, I was almost thinking Sverev was the likelier winner and had team not held serve at 5-4 in the second set to level the match at one set all. I think Zverev could easily have won that match. What's good for me about Zverev is that he looks back to the player he was back in 2018. Yep. 2019, he was you know, in patches good, but uh, he, he seemed a slightly wayward soul at times. I think a big part of it um, is that he's in love at the moment. You know, he's got a new relationship. I, I think he's very, very happy. Uh, she was sitting in the in the box throughout, and you know we've seen this over the years. Some players play well when they're in love; others don't play so well, or it doesn't make much difference for them. It's clearly making a difference for him, um, and I just think this is what he has needed because so much of his dip in form last year was off-court distractions. His father, management company, um, the on-off relationship with his old girlfriend, and I just think that he's got a bit of stability at the moment and. Let's face it, he's a quality player, um, and I think he played really well. I think he was slightly beaten in the semi-finals by team's greater experience. Yes. Team just had, had a few more options, but in a couple of years' time, if Sverev continues to develop, he will have those options too. Let's talk about some of the others who made the quarterfinals and had a run. Rafael Nadal is uh, one that we're talking about, and I think you know he did what he needed to do, got to the final of... The ATP Cup, that was a step forward. Quarter-finalist here, that big match with Dominic Team, who now has belief. Uh, roll on clay court season for him? Yeah, I mean, he's got a couple of hardcore tournaments before then. I mean, I think Nadal um, was very disappointed about losing to Team. But the thing is, when you're world number one, every match you play is your opponent's cup final. And 
you know, team played brilliantly in that. Team did not play as well against Zverev in the semi-finals as he did against Nadal in the quarterfinals. And, you know, we know that Nadal uh, tends to struggle on the hard court, certainly at this time of year. We know that uh, he had a, a really long match in the fourth round. Maybe he was a little bit uh, tired after that one. He just, it's easy to say Nadal doesn't get tired, but, you know, he played five matches at the ATP Cup. And I just think that uh, team brought out the perfect performance to beat him. But Nadal is still very much up there, and I think we'll see him do something on the hard courts before he gets his uh, red shoes on. Do we know? Do we think Stan's back to his best? About maybe 75 80% there? Well, I don't think you can talk in those terms with Stan. I think Stan has played... I mean, the, the way... Vavrinka played in the fourth round against Daniel Medvedev was quite outstanding and when he came off that match the fifth set performance was just unbelievable that was back to standard his very very best yeah. and I thought well he can sustain that he could go all the way here but the problem is he has not been able to sustain it in the two years since he came back after that horrible knee injury and you know, he has played great matches. What he's not been able to do is is to sustain them. And if Stan can really sustain the level of tennis that he played against Medvedev, then he is going to be top 10 this year. But the, the big question is, can he do that match after match? We talk, I, we talk I was, about rankings. They're a reflection of consistency, not a one-off great match. No, but I suggest going back to best of three set format, not going to be as taxing. He'll win more of those matches than he loses. Except that he comes into his own the longer matches I go. know, I know. You but know. maybe the shorter moving to... And getting better on the shorter formats is going to help him yes, in the long run. Yes, it may do. It may do. I would love to see him because watching the way he beat Medvedev was just a pleasure. Medvedev did not play badly. Vavrinka just hit the most sublime form, especially in the fourth set tiebreak and the fifth set. And if that is on show on a regular basis on the ATP Tour this year, we're all going to be the richer for it. Tennis Sangren, I guess, was a surprise, but it should have been a surprise considering what we saw a couple of years ago from him. He was... Well, he had seven chances to beat Roger Federer, but couldn't take them. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Sandgren's mental mindset. You know, he's going from 100 in the rankings at the start of the Australian Open to inside the top 50 at the end of it. And I hope he takes the confidence from those four wins that he had. What worries me for him slightly is that the, the fact that he lost those seven match points and the fact that most of them were down to his errors because Federer was just hitting very, very basic forehands and backhands and saying, okay, mate, you finish it. You're going to win this match. You're going to have to hit the winning shot. And it was Sandgren that broke down. That can, that's the kind of match that can do damage to a player's confidence. I hope he doesn't. Um, and Federer was very complimentary. He said, I don't know why we haven't played more often. I don't know why he hasn't been in the top 50 more often. He's back in the top 50 now. I hope he can build on this. Well, yeah, I mean, you're playing, you spend your existence playing on the ATP Tour, then bouncing the Challenger and going backwards and forwards. It can be difficult to transition backwards and forwards the whole time. Yeah, but if he's now in the top 50, it means that he's guaranteed a run of tour-level events. He's guaranteed a run of Masters 1000s. And, uh, you know, he's just got to get some results at these, and then he will find himself regularly in the top 50 and regularly competing at the level that really matters. I really like what Milos Ranić brought to the table this tournament. I think... After the 2019 where he was injured and just couldn't get anything going, the fact that he's back, obviously the serve is the massive thing. He was able to flatten out his second serve. We saw plenty going over 200 kilometres an hour. But backing it up too, I was impressed with what I saw. And he's fit. Yeah, and that's the key and thing. And if that stays, then he's going to be a factor this yeah, year. Yeah, I agree with that. He's got this massive game. And, uh, you know, it took Djokovic to beat him. And, uh, 
even then the the first set was very tight and I just think that uh, Raonic I don't think he believes he can beat Djokovic because the head-to-head is so emphatic for uh, Djokovic but I do think it's great to see Raonic back I think he adds something and I still think he's got a slam in him if he really focuses his best chance I think is at Wimbledon yeah I agree with that well as we draw this to a close let's talk about some of the memorable matches that you saw if we had to rank them across the two weeks what would you be going with in terms of excitement i think you've got to go for hatranov against kyrgios agree i think that was just amazing partly because there was an australian against a big name outsider that's always big it was on the melbourne arena where you've got a slightly different crowd you've got you know the 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 ground pass ticket holders rather than the you know it's less of a corporate crowd um and, of course, Kyrgios coming off what for him has been a very good Australian summer, a summer where he's had a cause, he's had some good results, and I think he's also done a certain amount of growing up. I hate saying that. It sounds like a, you know, a parent when actually what we want is for Nick Kyrgios to be Nick Kyrgios, but we're only going to take him seriously if he is really stringing together the results. And the fact is he has strung together the results. So I think that was a big match in terms of... That was probably the most exciting in terms of the entertainment the most exciting in terms of the significance, I think, was team beating Nadal. Because Nadal did not play badly. Team really had to dig deep. He had to be varied. And what was fascinating about that match was some of the choices Nadal made. Yes. Nadal made some choices which were odd and which frequently didn't work, which suggested to me that team's game plan had got into Nadal's head. And that is a change of direction. I'm also going to throw in Team Zverev. I thought that semi-final, you know, had had plenty, plenty to get us excited about the future. If those two are going to be playing that sort of quality of match, just the clean hitting from both. Yeah, okay, Zverev did have a few more downs towards the end of it, but there was a lot of the periods of that match that were quite up, and there were some fascinating points. And to me, we had. Djokovic Federer in one semi and then we had those two in the other semi and it sort of gives us a glimpse of okay if those two are going to be the ones who are going to be leading the pack after the big three retire then I think we're in good hands. Yeah we look in terms of generations don't we and it's easy to see Federer and Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Vavrinko is one generation, Cilic, Raonic, Nishikori, Dimitrov, Gulbis is another generation and then you've got your um, Tsitsipas, uh, Shapovalov, uh, Oje Aliasim, Chung, if he gets himself fit. Um, that generation who've been very much the, the, the leaders of the next gen since the ATP started, the next gen finals. But the, then you've got people like Kyrgios and Team who are sort of between those second and third generations. Team is 26, so he's approaching the peak physical fitness of his career, even though I think he's got, still got a lot to learn about how to play matches. What I've seen from Team over this fortnight is a continuation of what we've seen over the past 10 months. And it's remarkable to think that he's still been less than a year with Nicholas Massu. Yep. Because he's always been a top quality clay quarter and a good quality hard quarter. He's now become a top quality hard court player and that has been the great change. You know, those three hard court tournaments that he won last year, it's been so so important for him. And uh, even, you know, losing to Sissipas in the Nito ATP finals final, I think he proved his ability there and to have beaten Nadal and backed it up when he wasn't playing quite as well against Zverev. Do you know that for me is a coming of age and I think we've seen team stake his claim to be a regular member of the world's top five and not just on clay 
What else have we learnt about from these last two weeks about how this year's going to go? We did our time capsule the first week here in Melbourne. We sort of reviewed a couple of quality matches in week number two. This is week number three of our residency down here in Melbourne. What have we learnt? Have I, have I been able to, after these three weeks, convince you that Andre Rublev's going to finish inside the world's top ten? No, you haven't. Um, <laughs> but that's because... I was trying. That's because <laughs> finishing in the top ten is a, a reward for consistency. And I'm not convinced, will he win enough of the really big matches? I mean, I'll give you two of the names I picked in my top eight for uh, the ATP finals. Sverev and Shapovalov. Now, Shapovalov lost first round. Sverev got to the semis. I thought I was taking a bigger punt on Sverev. But I actually feel that Sverev, um, there's something intrinsically quality yes. about him that I felt would come good at some stage this year. I didn't expect it to come good this early. And I think he has, I think he's going to have a consistent year. He may not be a Grand Slam champion this year. He may not even get back into the top five. But I think he will be on the edge, if not into the top eight, come the end of the year. Shapovalov, well... There are plenty of players who've done badly at the Australian Open and who've had a good year. I mean, two years ago, Kevin Anderson qualified for the ATP yes. Finals, having lost in the first round here. So I don't think the year is in any ways um, wrecked for Shapovalov, but I think he needed a better start than, than he got. And, you know, he was beaten by Martin Fucevic in four sets in the first round, and it took Federer to beat Fucevic. So, uh, you know, Fucevic has had a good tournament, but I still think that... Um, it's too early to get too much of a read on who is in form this year, other than the fact that anyone who gets to the semi-finals of the Australian Open has a massive head start on the rest. Well, and I think ATB Cup helping a little bit of that as well. One person who wasn't here, who oh, I'm starting to wonder now, Juan Martín Del Potro, again, knee surgery, again, delaying the comeback, again, desperately trying to get back out there, again, it's not happening. It's, he just can't get a break at the moment. No, he can't, and it's tough. But there's no point in him coming back until he really can sustain it. There's no point in him coming back uh, on a wing and a prayer and then finding that you know he gets the quarterfinals of a, a decent tournament and he has to pull out injured. He needs to get himself ready. I think we've... The reason I keep coming back to this business about rankings being a reward for consistency is that I don't think we're going to see uh, Del Potro up in the top five we may not even see him in the top 10 I would love to see him back and winning some tournaments again because that for me is within his range he can play a good week but when he plays a good week he probably has to take three weeks off just so that the body recovers he's got a body that breaks down um, but if he's fit that forehand can still do an amazing amount of damage in fact his whole game um, has carnage written all over it and sadly he's not the only one struggling with injury at the moment but uh that I'm sure will be a theme throughout the year. Now, you know the deal, Chris. Once uh, the music stops, means we have to get out of here. The music hasn't stopped yet, but I reckon it's close. And people are looking at us with sort of a sign of tension in their eyes because uh, they want to move what we're sitting on. So we're running out of time. We've got a few more things we need to get through before we uh, finish this one off. And in terms of news around the ATP Tour, we're moving on to Clay for a little bit of the swing in South America. We've talked about Hawkeye technology, but the news coming through from the ATP is there's going to be some electronic review on clay. Only selected events for now, but it is sort of a starting point. The first trial going on in Rio, and there'll be some other events to follow. So during those tournaments, the difference is players will get unlimited challenges, ensuring that there's consistency. 
with players on the outside courts where the technology isn't there. And it's called Fox 10. Challenges made in the normal way. And uh, we should also point out that the women's tour, the WTA, are doing a similar sort of trial. Similar. They've got a slightly different rule. They are limited to three challenges. So in a way, we've got two experiments running side by side, which will be useful. What do you think? I think this is, this is good because it will just remove all sorts of doubt, all sorts of debate with this, and we just go with the technology. I like it for a very good reason. When you see a mark on a hard court of where a ball's landed, it's like this comet-shaped mark. That mark is smaller than if you see a similar mark on a clay court. Now, why should the mark be smaller on a hard court than on a clay court, given that a tennis ball is exactly the same size? The answer to that is that when a ball lands on a clay court, because of the wind speed it generates, it scatters the top dressing, the, the clay, the yes. crushed roof tiles, and creates a slightly bigger mark. And that's always troubled me over the years, that when a, an umpire comes down and says, look, the edge of the mark is touching the line, if that's the case, the ball was out mm. because the bit of the ball that touched the ground as opposed to generated the mark with the wind that, it, that the ball generates was not on the line. So for me, I actually think that having electronic review on clay is a good idea. And yes, it's good to have experiments because you don't know how it'll work out until you really try it. But I think having the experiment is good because I've never been entirely comfortable about checking marks. I also think that Ultimately, I would support having a limit of three and you don't check the marks at other times because we're getting away from, you know, we're, 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 having electronic review has stopped these delays to matches with players arguing with umpires. But on clay, you can get all sorts of delays to matches with the umpire coming down off the chair. Yeah, pointing at marks and all of that sort of stuff. Having yep. a discussion with the player yep, about yep, whether yep. the mark is actually, whether the ball was on the line, is the mark touching the line or not. And ultimately, I think that slows the game down. So much as I would very much encourage an umpire to come down once a set just to get the grey matter stimulated and get the, uh, the blood circulating, I don't think it's good for the game that they're always doing that. So I welcome electronic review. I, I welcome it too. And I think let's just wait and see how it works, how it fits together, tinker with it a little bit, and then we'll have something we'll be able to roll out, really. But, yeah, there's plenty more on that trial coming up in the podcast to come. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Okay, so that's it from me, Peter Mercado, and also Chris Bowers. We've, I've been doing a little bit of a residency for the last five weeks. You've been with us for the last three, and we've had a great time on AO Radio, which has been broadcast on ATP Tennis Radio. Plenty of winners in the other events at AO 2020 as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, in particular, I'm very happy for uh, people who are new on the Grand Slam Roll of Honour. One thinks of Nikola Mektic in the mixed doubles, and uh, Joe Salisbury, uh, who's uh, with Rajiv Ram. That's uh, won the men's doubles title. So I think uh, I think it's great when you see new names on the uh, Grand Slam Roll of Honour, and I think it's it's good for freshening up the game. But it's also good that we have the big names there because they're the ones that generally sell tickets until the new names are better known. And well done to Sophia Kennan as well on the women's side. Absolutely, and uh, you know it's a great story. Um, family moves from Moscow when she was still a baby. She's clearly very very determined. And uh, she says, you know, it was just my dream. It just shows that dreams can come true. There's been an awful lot of hard work that's gone into making her dream come true. And I think that's the big message that, that the element of her statement that wasn't quite reported, that uh, your dreams can come true if you're really willing to put in the hard work to make them come true. For the rest of us, we just enjoy the action. 
And Harold Mayo, watch out for that name, the junior boys champion here at Dayo 2020. A good final that he played and uh, maybe one to watch. Yeah, I mean, both um, the junior champions are of interest. Uh, Mayo um, won an all-French final. And in fact, Mayo and uh, Cazo, the guy he beat in the final, they're both given wild cards into the qualifying tournament for the ATP. Um, it's called the Open Treze, the uh, Marseille tournament, uh, beginning on the 17th of uh, February. And uh, the women's, uh, the girls' singles, was won by um, a 14-year-old, Victoria jimenez Katsintseva. And, uh, yeah, she's one to look out for because she's from Andorra. That's right. So there's a new tennis nation on the map. Oh, so many storylines, so many things to talk about, but uh, they're about to pick up this couch that we're sitting on, so we need to get out of here. Thank you for all your work over the last couple of weeks, Chris. Oh, it's a pleasure. And we'll be hearing you on ATP Tennis Radio throughout the year. We hope you've enjoyed this last month of podcasts live from Australia as we've brought you shows from the ATP Cup and, of course, the Australian Open, the first Grand Slam of the year. Next week, Seb Lozier will be picking up the podcast baton and running with it as we'll be looking forward to a few weeks of ATP 500 events in Rotterdam, in Rio, where the Fox 10 trials will be kicking in, Dubai and Acapulco, and uh, those events build to the first Masters event of the year. The BNP Paribas Open in Indian Wells will bring you our next live commentary on the 24-7 ATP Tennis Radio channel. But in the meantime, it's congratulations to yet another fantastic achievement from the new number one player in the world. And Djokovic wins. It's an utterly dominating win. And he owns this court again. Week one of the 2020 Australian Open saw Novak Djokovic complete the 900th match win of his career. My motivation is a win, regardless if it's a Grand Slam or any other event. And just the feeling of winning uh, a tennis match is uh, irreplaceable. It's a career-defining moment for the 19-year-old from Belgrade. Many people feel that we're looking at a future world number one. I'm still, you know, quite young and still learning uh, the tennis process. Oh, and learning how to, you know, deal with the pressure. First man to do three titles in a row here. We'll say no back is the player to beat. Novak Djokovic, you'd have to say he's the best player in the world. I'm really motivated to win matches. What a victory! He improves his record to 24 wins and no losses this season. A lot of different positive emotions that go through my joy, happiness, just the absolute fulfillment. Oh, great. Oh, what a way to win it! Dedicated to this sport and you try to achieve what you always dreamed of. And of course, you have flashback of all the moments in your childhood growing up and getting the racket for the first time in your hands. What a way to finish it! It's a roller coaster ride and uh, I enjoyed it very much. A moment of magic from Djokovic there. You have to work for it. You gotta have the self-discipline and dedication, devotion, but most of all passion for the sport, for what you do and keep on waking up every day and knowing what your big picture is and what you're aiming for. History is made in Cincinnati.
It's the goal that masters. Making history of the sport that I love with all my heart is, is always very meaningful to me. One of the greatest of all time leads his country to glory. Very proud and uh, very pleased. Big Costco back air from team. Djokovic is there from Millicourt. Wide from team! I tell you, this place is known as Rod Laver Arena, but this court belongs to Novak Djokovic. Title number eight here in Melbourne. Absolutely rock solid. By the barest of margins, a gallant effort by Dominic Team, but again, Novak stands tall. 6 4, 4 6, 2 6, 6 3, 6 4 in four hours. What a masterful performance from Novak Djokovic. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes Store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.